You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Well, good morning, and welcome to the International Spy Museum. Very much appreciate your coming here on this extremely cold day. We were stunned last night. We had an event and we thought, no one's going to come. No one will go anywhere in this weather. We had over 100 people here and they were standing in the back. Now, the fact that we were serving alcoholic beverages slightly before the event may have contributed to the success. I'm sorry we don't, we didn't, we have not replicated that for you. Um, I'm Peter Ernest. I'm the executive director of the museum. And uh, very pleased today to uh, welcome someone from the West Coast. Okay, you've flown a long way in. I'm sure you'd be glad to get back at some point. Uh, the subject matter that uh, Hugh addresses, Hugh Wilford, is fascinating to me as a uh, former CIA officer uh, involved in operations abroad as well as other aspects of the agency. But the subjects he discusses, both in this book and in his previous book, The Mighty Wurlitzer, are ways in which intelligence, specifically the CIA, has impacted on American culture, and the way American culture has impacted on the agency. And it's a fascinating subject because I think it goes beyond, at times of emergency like 9-11, everybody wants all the intelligence they get, at other times like the Snowden phenomenon, people are appalled. Why is the government doing these things? So you go from make sure 9-11 ever happens again to what are you guys up to? So I think people in intelligence are used to that. But I think other ways that the whole intelligence phenomenon, particularly since World War II and the founding of so many of these agencies, has had a far more subtle effect Part of it you see played out in popular culture. What we all see, all of the movies and the television, the books, and all of these things that, that tell Hollywood spy stories. Um, and, and I think that has notably contributed to the culture, impacted on the culture. We, as a number of you know, have been here today. How many of you have been, just went through, how many of you have been through the Bond exhibit? Now, okay, a small number. I encourage those of you who have not to do so. It's downstairs. It occupies the whole lower level of the museum. And part of what we've tried to do, this is not just about Bond, but it's about Bond's seen through the eyes of his times and the context in which even Fleming depicted certain threats, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, which took place barely a couple of weeks after the Dr. No, which was his first book. So these things are very subtle. The other thing I would add to that is that as an officer in CIA, an operations officer, you have no idea these things are going on. You don't, you don't know you're affecting culture. You don't realize that you're part of the culture that's affecting the agency. All this is very subtle, and it, it, it often takes someone like a writer or a reporter to understand these things and help us understand them. Uh, Hugh's previous book was about the effects on American culture. 
Um, by the way, I recommend to all of you, and then I'd like to introduce Hugh, uh, today's uh, above-the-fold story uh, is an interesting piece of American history. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember, but one of the first indicators that the security elements, if you were, were actually aligned against parts of American culture, those objecting to the Vietnam War, and that was surfaced in many ways by the raid on the FBI offices in Media, Pennsylvania. Uh, there was a raid on the offices. They stole every document they could get, and they passed them to the press. This is very parallel to the Snowden phenomenon. And what is interesting is that event showing that the operations of the FBI against Americans uh, had a very, very powerful effect uh, on the public, and it also led to Ellsberg's being not, in the end, convicted, I believe, because of government misconduct. So these are things we've, that, that have impacted on us as Americans and on our culture. What puts it on the front pages is the fact that the people who carried out the burglary were never identified. And now the statute of limitations has run out. And like so many people who have broken the law for one reason or another, they've done a book. And uh, we will have the book at some point. And I've been discussing with my uh, department heads, uh, perhaps we'll have those folks here uh, to talk about their, why they did what they did uh, and why they risked what they risked at that time. So enough. Let's get to you, Wilford. Uh, Hugh is at the California State University at Long Beach, where we'd all like to be today. Uh, previously at the University of Sheffield in the UK, uh, he is a U.S. intellectual historian, meaning he has studied intellectuals and ideas in our country. Uh, his subjects included the New York intellectuals, the history of the left, Americanization and anti-Americanization in Europe. In other words, the whole cultural Cold War phenomenon. Um, he, is, he has written wide, widely, and his works have, in, have shown how CIA specifically has impacted on America and Western culture, and the culture has affected the agency. The Mighty Wurlitzer was very much about that. This book, which uh, he will be here to sign afterwards, America's Great Game, uh, is about so many Americans in CIA came out of the background of having in, been in, exposed to British culture, British imperialism in the Middle East, as well as being the sons and daughters of missionaries. This was the group that I worked under in CIA. But because of compartmentation, because so often when you're in operations, when you're in different parts of the agency, you don't know what's going on elsewhere. It's very hard for a junior officer to back up and see the agency as a whole. In my last years, I worked in the office of the director, and you have an overview of the agency, and you have a much greater grasp of what's going on, the impact that the agency may be having on the public. Anyway, Hugh, this promises to be a very interesting session. We look forward to it. Thank you for joining us. So let me introduce Hugh Wilford. Please help me welcome him. Thank you, Peter, for that uh, that very kind and very interesting uh, introduction. And, and, and my, just repeat, uh, the thanks to you for coming out today in these conditions. Uh, having, uh, I'm from and, and live most of my life in, uh, in England, so often when I came to the US and uh, the wind was blowing and, and it was raining, I was accused of having brought British weather with me. But, but I now live on the West Coast, so uh, not, not guilty on this occasion. <laughs> if only I had brought the weather with me from the West Coast. Um, uh, so uh, what, what I thought I might do today is um, 
Uh, say a few, begin by saying a few words about how I came to the subject matter uh, of this book uh, before going on to describe some of its uh, central themes. Um, as Peter indicated, my uh, previous work was ab about American uh, CIA front groups in the Cold War. So these are apparently uh, independent uh, organizations made up of uh, private US citizens uh, engaged in the cultural Cold War and the sort of the battle for hearts and minds with, with the communists. Uh, in various locales uh, overseas. Um, and it later emerged that, that these apparently independent groups, in fact, were being secretly funded uh, by, and to some extent, managed by, uh, by the CIA. Now, uh, in the course of researching that, that book, I, I came across this story of the American Friends of the Middle East, uh, uh, one of the groups that was revealed as having uh, received CIA funding and direction. This is in the late 1960s. And I, was, I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. It didn't, it didn't really seem to be all that much to do with the Cold War, actually. It, it, it was um, pro-Arab, uh, and, and pro -Arab, in particular pro-Arab nationalist. It, it, it uh, advocated for uh, the Egyptian, the, the, Arab, the sort of leading Arab nationalist figure of the 1950s and 60s, Gamal Nasser, advocated for him uh, within the US. And it was, it was anti-Zionist as well. It, 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 it sort of protested the degree of support that US government was, was extending to Israel in the Middle East. So I thought, well, I mean, it was rather surprising, right? And perhaps it surprises you to learn that the CIA was funding this, this pro-Arab anti-Zionist group. So I sort of, it didn't really kind of fit quite into the, set, the narrative that, that I crafted in the Mighty Word. So, so I sort of put it to one side and said I'd come back to it and come back to it. Uh, I did. And... Um, uh, been researching it the last five or six years, um, chasing up references to it in, in various private collections and in interviews, and, and also in official records. Uh, it, it, you can't, most of the CIA records relating to such operations either remain classified or perhaps have been destroyed, but you can nonetheless find out a surprising amount about such things from sort of delving into other record groups in the U.S. National Archives, also um, the, the British Public Record Office as well actually contains a surprising uh, amount about U.S.-U.K. joint uh, covert operations. So what, what, what emerged uh, from, from this uh, research was a, um, a, a story that had at its core um, that man who, uh, it emerged, was behind the American Friends of the Middle East, uh, Kermit Kim Roosevelt. Uh, now, this name might be familiar to some of you uh, because he's known chiefly for uh, an operation that he ran in the field in Iran in 1953, uh, the, the coup that overthrew the, the nationalist prime minister of, of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, and restored the rule of the Shah. Um, uh, and, and this is, is often sort of seen as the basis for, for much of the U.S.-Iranian ill-feeling that, that, that has uh, come about uh, ever since and, and, and bedeviled U.S.-Iranian relations, in which there only really seem, you know, seems to have been a thaw in the last, the last year or so. Um, so um, just, just to add a little bit of detail to, 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 to that, to what I just told you about Kermit Roosevelt, He's, he was a grandson of, of President Theodore Roosevelt, um, so very much a sort of member of the American aristocracy, as, as it were. Uh, he is, um, and, and he's the, the, the man who heads up U.S. covert operations generally in the early Cold War period, as well as being the, the man who, who ran this operation on the ground uh, in Iran. So even before I'd begun, really, I, I was faced with this puzzle. Uh, in addition to that, that initial question I had of, you know, what what was the CIA doing running a pro-Arab anti-Zionist front group? Uh, now the question was, um, and why was Kermit Roosevelt the, the enemy of Iranian nationalism, right? Why, why, why was he behind it? Why was he apparently a friend of, of Arab nationalism and such uh, nationalists in particular as, as Gamal Nasser uh, of Egypt? Uh, well, as I uh, researched this question and, and or, or pair of questions and tried to answer them, what what emerged was a um, sort of a, gr a group biography. It, it wasn't the, the 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 book America's Great Game that resulted uh, isn't just about Kermit Roosevelt. It, it's it's also about two other men, uh, Kermit's 
cousin Archie, another grandson of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, another senior member of the, the CIA's early Middle East uh, division. Um, like Kermit, um, a, a sort of quite a quiet, scholarly man. Not quite as kind of. They're both quite slight men as well. Not 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 the sort of big, uh, muscular uh, 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 type such as their their their, their grandfather uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And um, but but there was a sort of type like that in their midst because uh, the, the third member of this core group of, of CIA officers that, that, that I, I've written about was a man called Miles Copeland, uh, who uh, was not from the same sort of blue-blooded aristocratic background as the Roosevelt's. He was a southerner. He was from Alabama, from a, a far less kind of um, socially uh, aristocratic um, um, background, and uh, and and and. Whereas they were quite quiet, the, the, Miles Copeland basically wouldn't shut up. He's, he's a very, very sort of outspoken, rambunctious, thigh-sapping kind of a guy. Um, and, and just uh, to, to add to that picture, slightly bizarrely, the uh, the father of Stuart Copeland, drummer for the police. <laughs> Uh, interesting family, the, the Copelands. Uh, Miles was, uh, was, was a jazz trumpeter, sort of renowned in, in, in the CIA as a jazz trumpeter, and apparently this, this musical talent was, uh, was passed on to his son, uh, Stuart. So uh, it, it's, it's a group biography, um, but it's also a, a history of the CIA in the Middle East in, in, in the, the 1940s and 1950s, which was when really the, the, the CIA... First, uh, and, and the US government generally first entered the, the Middle East. The CIA was only created in 1947. And prior to this period, uh, the, the, the CIA w was, in official terms at least, very much a, a European, a, a British, and, and, and French uh, preserve. So it's, it's about this kind of this original moment, this sort of foundational moment when, when uh, the US enters the Middle East. Uh, officially, and uh, it, it tracks what these uh, these three men, who really they, they dominated, I think the the the, the CIA's uh, the operations uh, in in the region between them, Kermit Roosevelt in particular. Uh, it, it follows them around the uh, the region. It also looks at what they're doing uh, domestically. You know that that returning to that original puzzle of why. Uh, what was Kermit funding the American Friends of the Middle East, this, this, this group of American citizens advocating for the, for the Arabs and against uh, U.S. support for, for Israel. Um, and uh, it, 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 as, as the example of Iran in 1953 would suggest, these guys were involved in, in, a, in a, lot of, a lot of unrest in the region, uh, organizing coups or attempting to organize uh, coups. But at the same time, they were, they, they were quite pro-Arab. They were friendly towards the Arab world. They knew a, a good deal about it. Um, they, were, they were Arabists, uh, this, this term, sort of since really quite, quite sort of pejorative connotations. But nonetheless, they were Arabists in the sense that they were, they were area experts. But they also had some sort of sympathy. Uh, with uh, with Arabs and with Arab culture and and and, and with Muslims, um, so um, the, the the book is about this this perhaps surprising moment, uh, and and it attempts really I guess to answer two main questions, which are, you know, where why were these people Arabists? Where did this Arabist impulse? come from and where did it go to you know why why is it that uh, the cia really went from being i guess one of the sort of biggest friends of the arab world to being seen as this dark malevolent almost satanic force in uh, in 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 the middle east um so just to sketch the the answers to uh, those those questions that um, I, I uh, come up with in the uh, in the book, first as to where this Arabist impulse uh, originated. Uh, well, uh, as Peter was uh, suggesting, I think it comes to a large degree from uh, from the British. Um, because the British preceded the Americans to the, the region. And uh, because 
there was this kind of romance about British Arabism, and of course, in particular, a figure you no doubt will have heard of, Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, um, uh, this, this archaeologist turned uh, a spy uh, who liaised who with the Arabs in, in, in World War I. And, and the example of Lawrence really sort of captivated the imaginations of the, the young Roosevelts. They, they read his memoir of World War I, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, uh, they, well, Kermit's father, uh, also Kermit, uh, knew Lawrence personally. They met during World War I and they corresponded afterwards. Um, this is also where the concept of the great game uh, comes in because uh, in addition to Lawrence, there was a, there was a, a, a sort of a whole literary genre of uh, British spy thrillers set in the East, most famous example of that being uh, uh, Rudyard Kipling's Kim, which is set in India at uh, the height of the Raj and, and follows the adventures of this, this, this Anglo-Indian uh, boy, Kim, uh, which of course is where Kermit Roosevelt's nickname came from. He, he, as, as a child, he read Kim. Apparently at one point he impersonated Kim <laughs> and uh, it, that, that, the, the nickname stuck to him. It stuck to him through, throughout, throughout his adult life. So there is this kind of this British influence on these uh, young CIA Arabists, which uh, predisposes them, I think, to sort of see the, 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 the East, generally in the Middle East in particular, as a sort of a place for romantic adventure, um, for, um, for, for spy games. Um, and uh, just, just to try and uh, convey that sense, uh, I want to uh, quickly read uh, a poem that young Kermit Kim Roosevelt penned at the age of 15 and was uh, published in uh, the, the American Boy Youth's Companion, which sounds like a really splendid publication. publication. I, I doubt it's still around today. But anyway, this, this is what uh, Kim Roosevelt, aged 15, thought about the lure of the East, as he entitled this poem. I've read of the East for years unnumbered. I've dreamt about it since first I slumbered. I've learnt about it in poems and verses. I've heard of its comforts and heard of its curses. I've talked about it with men who've been there. I know of the trouble and dirt and sin there. And yet on putting the facts together, I still want to go there as much as ever. So, and, and go there he did as a, uh, as, as a, as a CIA officer. Um, so there is this, there's this sort of British spy adventure element in all of this, but it's not, again, as uh, uh, Peter suggested, it's not the only influence acting on the CIA Arabist because there is also this uh, specifically American tradition of interaction with the Middle East and engagement with uh, Arabs and Muslims that dates back to the 19th century. I'm referring here to American missionaries in the region um, who uh, they, they went in great numbers uh, to, to the Middle East in the 19th century, and although um, perhaps predictably failed largely to convert many uh, of the region's inhabitants who weren't already Christian to Christianity, nonetheless, they did leave a significant imprint on the region because they uh, founded uh, a number of schools and hospitals there, and, and perhaps most importantly, a number of the region's leading universities, the American University of, uh, of Beirut in particular. Um, at which uh, became very strongly identified with the cause of Arab nationalism. These, these, these universities were kind of incubators for, for Arab nationalism. So um, before the US officially enters the region, before the CIA is even thought of, there is this tradition of sort of private American missionary uh, interest in the Middle East, which is which is benign, right? It's, it's positive, and it creates this kind of legacy of, 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 of American-Arab friendship. And uh, I think between them, these are the two sort of, they're, they're, they're the kind of cultural, Peter was talking about my interest in American culture, and they're, they're the sort of the cultural influences on the, the, the minds of these people as they, as they come to the region in the 1940s and 1950s. Of course, there are geopolitical uh, motivations as well. There's, there's the... There's the escalating Cold War with the Soviet Union and the feeling that the that, that, that Middle East could be lost to uh, communism if, if the U.S. doesn't involve. There's con uh, 
if the region is lost, of course, that's that's disastrous in, in, in economic terms because of because of the region's oil, oil reserves, which are increasingly seen as you know vital to Western survival in in, in the Cold War. But so so the, the, I, I don't mean to diminish the importance of those sort of geopolitical concerns, but 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 I think it's important to think in terms of of the sort of you know what, what is shaping these people's minds as as they grow up and as they as they enter adulthood, because these guys they're in their twenties and thirties when when I'm writing about them. They're, 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 they're very young men, and, uh, and I think it's their backgrounds that, uh, that really shape their approach to the region, and which help explain why it is that the CIA is in the business of funding the American Friends of the Middle East, this, this uh, pro-Arab anti-Zionist front group that is uh, quite active in the US in the early 50s. It's kind of battling with the nascent Israel lobby. There's this sort of behind-the-scenes battle going on between uh, CIA-funded pro-Arab anti-Zionist front group on the one hand and, and, and uh, organizations such as APAC, which is, which is formed in the mid-1950s, and, th and then American Zionists are receiving some support from, from some covert support from the Israeli government. So Mossad and CIA are kind of battling it out in 1950s America for control of American opinion. So there's this, there's this sort of dimension to it. But... Um, also, there's, there's, um, there's what the CIA Arabists are doing in the Middle East itself, of course, and uh, perhaps the, I go into detail in the book, I, I, I won't do so now, but I should just mention the, the major Arabist operation on the ground in the Middle East, which is uh, support for Gamal Nasser, um, the... Um, uh, the CIA, Kermit Roosevelt, sends a team of CIA officers to Cairo uh, after the 1952 revolution in, in Egypt, which overthrows the, the British uh, client monarchy of King Farouk and, and, and replaces it with a nationalist military uh, government, um, led eventually by Gamal uh, Nasser. He, he sort of emerges as the dominant figure in this government in 1954. Uh, Kermit Roosevelt orders uh, uh, Miles Copeland and, and, and various other uh, CIA operatives to, to the Middle East to sort of shore up, uh, and, and to Cairo in particular, to shore up, uh, to buttress this, this, this new government against internal threats to its survival, so external threats. There's, um, um, th th there's a sort of curious element to this operation, which is I, I call the, 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 the chapter in which I discuss this Mad Men on the Nile by which I'm referring to the fact that a number of these guys are, are from advertising backgrounds. They're, 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 they're trying to sort of advise NASA and his government on how to make themselves look good to, uh, to, to, to their dom the domestic Egyptian population and to the world uh, at large uh, as well, so that, um, so that the, the, the regime will uh, survive. And of course, the, I mean, the irony is that, that the regime does survive and still survives today in the sense that it, it's, you know, it's the military government that, 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 that Egyptians are still trying to throw off today. So in some ways, the CIA Arabists' kind of most significant success in the Middle East has kind of become a, in some ways a sort of questionable legacy to, uh, to the region. But, you know, at the time, in, in the context of the 1950s, Gamal Nasser is the leading face of, of Arab nationalism and the CIA, it turns out, is part of the reason for that. Um, I, I won't talk in, in detail about uh, any more about the, the sort of the forms that uh, CIA Arabism uh, took, but uh, I do, uh, except to just say just one final, I, I made a note in the margin here, I forgot to mention it, the fact that, this sort of ironic fact that, that Miles Copeland's cover when he's in, 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 in Cairo is, uh, he's an employee of Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, we're right, some of you know that name because of course that was the company for which Edward Snowden was, uh, was working when, when he blew the whistle on the NSA. Um, now, um, I, I should uh, conclude by just, just saying um, something about um, why uh, my, my response to that second question I set myself of, of why is it that CIA Arabism fails? Um, and uh, because fail it did, right? Um, Gamal Nasser, um, from having been a, a really quite friendly towards the US, becomes estranged from it and ends up quite anti-American. Uh, the US moves away from supporting nationalist governments, uh, such as the revolutionary government in Cairo, to sort of more uh, conservative, traditional um, um, uh, governments um, 
uh, often monarchies of the sort that the British had, had, had supported, had created, uh, in, in, or helped create in the first place. Um, and um, meanwhile, uh, at, at home, um, the American Friends of the Middle East uh, is, is sort of decisively defeated by the, the, the Zionists and uh, more or less uh, abandons or moves away from its mission of sort of advocating for Arabs within uh, the, the U.S. towards just more sort of um, kind of Cold War, um, trying to sell the U.S. to, 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 to the Middle East types of, uh, types of operations. And... Um, by 58, um, the, uh, the, the core group of Arabists, uh, Miles and Archie Roosevelt and Miles Copeland, are sort of broken up. Uh, both Kermit uh, Roosevelt and Miles Copeland have left the CIA for employment, much more profitable personally employment with the oil industry, and Archie stays behind at the CIA, but he, he's moved to a different desk. He's moved to another uh, region. Why um, does CIA Arabism fail in this manner? Uh, well, um, there are clearly a great many number of external uh, forces acting on it. Um, John Foster Dulles, Dwight Eisenhower's Secretary of State, um, takes a strong uh, personal dislike to, to NASA. Um, and um, you know, he, he sees the kind of the independent third camp position which, which NASA was trying to occupy in the Cold War as effectively pro-Soviet because he has such a sort of us and them. Um, um, uh, Cold War view uh, of the world. Uh, the, the British are very effective at sort of lobbying the Americans to take an anti-nationalist position in the Middle East, uh, more supportive of, of traditional Western imperial interests in the region. Uh, conservative Arab leaders themselves uh, are, are good at sort of getting the Americans against rather than behind a nationalist like, uh, like NASA. But um, I think a big part of the problem for the CIA Arabist is sort of more internal to CIA Arabism. Uh, and I'm going to take you back to that, that initial um, statement I made about the influence of, of British Arabism on the Americans. Um, I, I think uh, the attraction of the likes of Kermit Roosevelt uh, to the notion of the, of the East as a place for spy games, as a place for Kipling's uh, great game, it perhaps um, moves them too sort of readily to adopt covert operations as, as a fix to American uh, policy uh, challenges uh, in the Middle East. Um, you know, and Kermit Roosevelt, who is known, let's remember, by everybody as Kim, right? He, he can't sort of, it's almost as if he can't escape that, that, that legacy. At the same time, he's trying to back nationalists like, like, uh, like NASA. Um, the, 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 this, this sort of British imperial tradition is, uh, is claiming him. If, if you read his uh, memoir of the 1953 coup operation in Iran uh, that overthrew Mossadegh and restored the rule of the Shah, it's almost, it reads like an old-fashioned British adventure story. It reads like a, like a Kipling novel or a John, in particular John Buchan's uh, 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 Green Mantle. It's... it's um, Kermit Roosevelt sort of almost can't help but play the great game, even though he tries to uh, do something different from what uh, uh, British and earlier year, uh, Western imperial uh, powers uh, had, uh, had done uh, in the region. So I guess that sort of takes us back to that original puzzle and original question which, which had occurred to me, which is why, why does Kermit Roosevelt, the friend of Arab nationalism, do, do, do what he did in Iran? <laughs> So what, what, what are we to do with this story uh, now? What, what does this uh, tell us uh, about the present day? What lessons can we draw? Well, uh, I'm an academic and a historian, uh, and so I'm, I'm a little loath uh, to, to go too far down this uh, uh, course of presentism, right? It's something historians are supposed to uh, avoid. You're supposed to just think about the past on its own terms and not necessarily read it in terms of present-day concerns. And in any case, I'm, I'm not sure that the lessons are in fact all that clear, right? Because uh, on, on, on the one hand, the fact that CIA Arabism existed at all, it's rather surprising existence, um, suggests that you know, there the was a prior history right, of, of, of American Arab friendship 
that, that, that drew on a missionary's benign presence uh, in, the, uh, in the Middle East. And that suggests that there's nothing inevitable, right, about American-Arab conflict. It's not, it's not a clash of civilizations that some observers have observed, have, have claimed is what uh, motivates the, uh, you know, the clash between the, 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 the large, you know, Christian West and the, and, uh, and the Muslim uh, East. Um, so one can perhaps draw that lesson from it, yet at the same time as, as some reviewers of the book have turned out, uh, have pointed out, uh, it's also striking how quickly the, uh, the CIA Arabists crossed to the other side, uh, other side of the road, how they went from you know, trying to promote Arab nationalists to trying to promote more conservative anti-nationalist uh, leaders. CIA Arabism and, and, and the tradition of friendship between the civilizations on which it drew in the end really proved a very sort of slender uh, read. Um, but having said that, uh, th there is something that does seem clear to me uh, about the relationship between the history that I'm describing and the present day, and, and that is that, that really I, I think the events I'm talking about, they are they're foundational. They're, they are very important to understanding uh, present-day U.S.-Middle Eastern uh, relations. Uh, if, you know, if you look at really all the major news stories of, of, of the current moment about the region and U.S. Uh, US relations with it from, uh, from Egypt, to Iran, to Syria. I haven't really talked about Syria, but uh, both Kermit and Archie Roosevelt in particular were involved uh, in a number of uh, uh, would-be coup operations, attempts to overthrow Syrian government in the mid-1950s, which sort of remind one more recent discussions about whether the CIA should be uh, uh, seeking to undermine the, uh, the Assad regime. If you look at all of these uh, news stories, they. Uh, their origins lie in this moment, in the 1940s and 1950s, when uh, the U.S. government and the CIA first uh, first entered the region. So I think if you if, if if you want to understand what's going on there now, you need to you need to know this history. And on that plug, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll conclude. Thanks very much for your attention. Yes, questions, please. Hi. Oh. By the name of uh, Edward Said coined the term Orientalism. Yes. Uh, which implies a certain uh, condescension toward the non-Nordic, uh, non-Western uh, non, uh, non people of the uh, Middle East. Uh, Sort of the idea that they're inferior and then they, they, they should be, they can, it's all right to manipulate them because they're like children. To what degree did the Roosevelt's, uh, in particular, subscribe to this concept that uh, mm -hmm. Orientalism? Thank you for that question. Um, I think it is, it is part of the sort of the media, the culture that, that shapes them and their approach to uh, the Middle East. They're, uh, love of enthusiasm for Kipling in particular. Ed, Edward Said wrote about Kipling and his Kim in particular as the sort of the classic literary, in some ways the finest literary expression of Western Orientalism, but, but it, it, it's, as I indicated in my talk, they are their big fans of that book and, and Kermit Roosevelt takes his, his nickname from it. But um, I think, so it, 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 does, it does shape their, their youthful imaginations, but they, they do attempt to transcend it as well. And uh, uh, I think that in their sense that they, that they have first-hand knowledge of the region. Orientalism is, is largely, as, as Said describes it, is a sort of a, a, a Western uh, system of perception of the Middle East, which is based not on first-hand knowledge of it, but rather on sort of second-hand uh, uh, sources. And uh, they, they, they know the region, they know its inhabitants, uh, and they sort of sit at the feet of uh, uh, these, the, the, these American missionaries who really, they, they were during the, the years of uh, World War II it, within the OSS, the CIA's precursor organization, they really sort of shaped the OSS, OSS's operations in the Middle East such as they were. And, and I think from, from those guys, they absorb a sort of a non-Orientalist firsthand, much more sort of you know, genuinely humane, um, uh, approach to, to, to Arabs. 
uh, and, uh, and Muslims. Uh, and, and I think really this story, uh, as, I, as I tell it, is a kind of, it's a sort of struggle between those impulses, between the Orientalist and the anti-Orientalist. Um, I, th I think perhaps the, uh, where, where they, they don't really sort of transcend Orientalism is in Iran. Uh, they, 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 whereas they have this, this kind of this attitude of friendship towards Arabs, um, it seems that they succumb to sort of old-fashioned British imperial Orientalist attitudes in Iran more quickly than they do in the, in the Arab world, which perhaps, you know, that's another factor explaining why, why Kermit Roosevelt um, is, is prepared to go in and overthrow Mossadegh's uh, government in, in 1953. You know, he's too ready to listen to the British, and the British really want Mossadegh out of the way because he's nationalized their all interest in, in, in the region. And I think uh, uh, Kermit Roosevelt, who has personal links with the sort of British aristocracy because of his Roosevelt background, he's, he's perhaps too ready to listen to, to, to the British uh, on, the, on the subject of Iran. Thanks for that question. Hello. Yes. To what extent did strategic thinking, specifically that Israel was not a sustainable nation state in a sea of Arab nations, enter into their calculations? Oh, sure. That, that, that's, that's an important consideration as, as, as well. Uh, it, it was one that, um, uh, that, that was a view that was uh, commonly held in, in the State Department in its sort of Middle East, amongst its Middle East hands. Uh, most uh, State Department uh, Middle East specialists at the time were, were anti-Zionist. Um, so for, partly for strategic geopolitical considerations, you know, you, um, they, they, Loy Henderson in particular thought that um, uh, backing Israel you know, lost alienating the Arab uh, uh, nations in the context of this of this Cold War battle, and and, and this would this is a way of losing the Middle East uh, to to the Soviet Union, uh, and uh, th those sort of considerations do 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 affect my uh, my CIA Arabists for sure. But 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 also I I think that they're, they're sort of perhaps they're readier than they might have otherwise been to have listened to, to, to that particular argument by virtue of their, their, uh, their backgrounds the, the, and, and the influence of this sort of romantic Arabism inherited from the British and then, uh, then um, from the OSS Arabists, the missionaries uh, under whom they served, in, in both Archie and, and Kermit uh, in, in North Africa during World War II. Um, it, it's, you can see pro-Arab feelings in both Roosevelt cousins, really even before the Cold War has, has, has sprung up. They, they sort of predate those kinds of uh, geopolitical considerations. I'll go here and then to Peter. Sure. Right. Yes, I've got uh, a mic. Does it work? Oh, yeah. okay. Um, is it on? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, my <laughs> question was, to what extent in describing the CIA Arabists, uh, who, as I say, I had, had worked with to agree, I was very involved in covert action, um, and in a sense, the whole world was part of the great game. Hmm. I mean, that was the Cold War was fighting for influence around the world, and it often involves supporting regimes we might not today, and I refer you to South Africa and apartheid and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, but my question is, to what extent do you think the, the what you're calling the American Arabists and CIA were rogue? In other words, they certainly reflected the culture of our country at the time. You, you talked about the State Department, the outlook of the uh, Arabists, the specialists in the State Department. So. My, my, my concern is that we sort of look at these CIA folks as off on their own, doing these things. Didn't they do this at the direction of and with the concurrence mm. of successive administrations? That mm. was our government's policy. Our great, one of our great interests, regardless of politics, was oil mm. in the Middle East. And to the extent that the formation of Israel was alienating the Arab population, I think there was an attempt by these folks and others to try and keep that from happening. Mm -hmm. Certainly, yeah. The, 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 especially when the Eisenhower administration came in in 1953 and uh, adopted this position of sort of greater impartiality uh, in, in the region, uh, there was this attempt to you know, settle the Arab-Israeli dispute on, on, on terms uh, favorable to the Arabs as, as, as well as to the uh, as well as to the Israelis. So in, in that sense, they, the, the, the sort of the agenda that the CIA Arabists with matched 
uh, with uh, that, the agenda for the region of, uh, of, of the Eisenhower administration. So in that sense, uh, no, they, 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 weren't, they weren't rogue. Um, but there was, uh, I, I, don't, I wouldn't describe them as rogue at any point, but nonetheless, the, 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 there was a feeling that they were, uh, to some extent, able to sort of run their own show and do their own thing. I mean, this is a point at which, you know, there aren't many Middle East specialists anywhere within U.S. government. There is a tendency to view Kermit Roosevelt partly because of his background and his family connections, but also because of his, his interest in, in the region, which is quite unusual, uh, as the guy to go to, right, as the authority. He's, he's called Mr. Middle East in, 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 in sort of government circles uh, at, at this time. So he is, you know, he is given a very, a very free reign, um, especially during the, the, the early years. Al, Alan Dulles kind of is, is you know, just let, 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 lets him go ahead and do his thing. But eventually, of course, when Alan's brother, John Foster, uh, takes again uh, uh, NASA uh, and uh, sort of turns against the, the, this position of supporting Arab nationalism, um, suddenly Kermit Roosevelt's position turns out to be sort of less powerful than perhaps he, he, he would have liked. And he feels disregarded and ignored and becomes increasingly uh, dis dissatisfied, disenchanted with, with, with Dulles's leadership of, of, of foreign policy and eventually, eventually walks away. So um, the, 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 there, is, there is a sense in which you know, the, the, these guys are sort of being al allowed to do their own thing. And I think that's reflected in, in, in the CIA sponsorship of the American Friends of the Middle East. And that very much seems to me to be Kermit's sort of pet project, really. He, 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 when he's not in the CIA, he's organizing extremely similar organizations. Uh, this is prior to 1949, off his own bat, really. So, uh, and, and then he sort of uses CIA money to sort of carry on something that 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 that, that he that he was already doing. So, but the the, the it, it, so it, I, th I think it goes from them really being sort of doing 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 their own thing to a position in which eventually this this very strong-minded Secretary of State uh, uh, asserts himself, and uh, and 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 then eventually the CIA arabists leave the scene. Did you have a question? Yes. Can I ask you about the three um, men who you wrote about, principally the yes. Roosevelts um, and the third person? Did, were they, could they speak Arabic fluently? Um, Kermit couldn't, no. Uh, Bo, uh, Archie uh, could. He, he was uh, uh, actually a brilliant linguist. Had, had I think, 16 languages or all, all, all told. Uh, Miles Copeland learned Arabic as well, although he always spoke it with an Alabama drawl, somebody, <laughs> somebody said. so. Uh, but uh, one senses that really it's... Kermit is, is largely based in Washington sort of or pulling the, the strings or, or, or you know, commanding uh, the, the operations on a sort of regional level. Archie and uh, Miles are both more in, in, in the field with you know, sort of really hands-on knowledge of what's going on there and, uh, and, and, and command of Arabic. And had they traveled in that region prior to having positions in the CIA? I mean... Yes. Uh, Archie had, had served in uh, military intelligence during World War II in, in, uh, right, right across North Africa. And um, um, uh, Kermit Roosevelt served with, uh, with the Office of Strategic Services in, in Cairo during World War II. Miles Copeland was the only complete newcomer uh, to the region in the late 40s when the CIA was created. But he was a very quick learner. He's a very smart young man. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. And, and the other one you mentioned in the book is Eddie who yes. was actually raised, I think, in Damascus. I mean, he spoke fluent Arabic, street Arabic. But you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier, there weren't many people in America who knew much about the Middle East. And so th there was, certainly in those early years of the Cold War, there was a turning to people who knew something yes. and putting them in the field. My, I spent many years in Greece. And uh, so in many cases, the people who were fielded were people who had Greek. Yes. I was taught Greek. Uh, because we wanted to field either people who had the specialty or could hit the ground running yes. when, they, when they got down there. So it doesn't seem unusual to me that these people would be selected. I mean, mm. that was how the agency was formed, networking with people who knew other people who either had the language or connections. In other words, you tried to put people in there in the field who were not totally mm. naive, who mm. had some sense of place, some sense of the area they were going into, and they exercise their mm -hmm. expertise. So I, I guess I'm not as taken aback 
by the role they played. I think people in government would have deferred in many cases to the, the people who mm. knew the area, the middle, in mm. this case, the well, middle. No, no, yeah, no, I, I, no, I agree with you. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really taken aback by by their presence in the sea, and it, it makes perfect sense. The, the who, who knew about the Middle East in, in, in the U.S. prior to this period? Well, it was it was missionaries, um, some archaeologists, uh, some oil men, and and uh, there are links between all of those communities and and uh, and espionage, and, and 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 in particular the missionary community. You know, it, it's my sort of. That there is this kind of earlier generation uh, of of, um, of senior OSS uh, Middle East hands. Uh, you mentioned William Eddy, also um, two other men, Stephen Penrose and, and Harold Hoskins, um, all, all of whom had originally ready from that sort of missionary educator uh, background. And uh, it, it was they, I think, who really sort of schooled uh, people like the Roosevelt cousins in uh, in, in the Middle East and, and its and its ways. When you referred to, one last question, when you sure. referred to uh, engineering coups or, or carrying out things, th that was not something they thought up at Langley one Saturday morning. That came out of the national security structure. I mean, it came straight from the president, National Security Council, and so forth. As I say, it was either at the direction of the administration or after discussion and so forth with the concurrence of. So yes. these were not independent actions they were undertaking because they were Arabists, spoke Arabic, and came from a certain background. Right, no, I, I, pre I do appreciate that, yes, it was, uh, but, but, but nonetheless, the, the form that those actions uh, took, and they, they, they were to a certain, you know, to a large degree, you know, entrusted to people like, like Kermit Roosevelt because of the lack of other expertise in the field, because the Cold War was breaking out in everywhere in, in, in the world, as, as, as you were suggesting. Um, there, there are points one senses that both Dulles brothers are, are, are more or less saying to Kermit Roosevelt, look, you're the guy who knows about this. Do, do what you have to do in order to protect U.S. national interests in, 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 in the region. But, but yes, but ultimately approval does have to come from, from the White House, and, 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 it does for, and it does for these actions. So it, it is, yes, you're right, it is taking place within, within that government framework. Are there no other questions? Well, thank you very much for, for, for those great questions. Yeah, thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month. here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.